One of the most exciting ideas in searching for exoplanets is to search for planets with magnetospheres. Of course, the Earth is protected by a magnetosphere. Life on Earth wouldn't be the way it is without this protective magnetosphere. But when radiation from the sun hits the magnetosphere, it gives off radio emissions that are theoretically visible. But these wavelengths are very long. And in fact, we've never been able to peer into them. We're blocked here on the surface of the Earth from being able to see them. And no one has ever built a space telescope big enough to be able to observe them. But maybe that's about to change. So my conversation today is with Dr. Mary Knapp, who works at the Haystack Observatory, famously part of the Event Horizon Telescope, helping to provide those images of supermassive black holes. And her proposal, and this is the award of a recent NIAC grant, is to launch a constellation of tiny CubeSats that can work together as a gigantic interferometer and to let us peer into these very long radio wavelengths. It'll help us explore and see the universe in different new ways, but also to be able to detect the magnetospheres of exoplanets that would actually be invisible to any of the other methods that we have to detect planets today. So it's a very interesting conversation. Uh, enjoy. What is the Haystack Observatory? Haystack Observatory is uh, part of MIT, um, but it is a remote site. Uh, so it's where MIT and Lincoln Laboratory have put their, their radio telescopes uh, to be far from Boston and far from interference. So we are located in Westford, Massachusetts, which is about 20 minutes from Lowell, um, so north northwest of the city. And we have a large site with a lot of very large radio telescopes, um, including some radars. Um, and we, we share the site with Lincoln Laboratory, so it's you know, they have... Um, defense purposes for some of their telescopes. Uh, but we at Haystack, we do basic research. Uh, we do science that's open and um, spans the gamut of, uh, of radio science. And what are some famous discoveries that were made using the Haystack Observatory? Well, one of the um, one of the projects that is probably the most exciting right now is the Event Horizon Telescope. So Currently, the Event Horizon Telescope data that comes in from all over the world uh, is correlated. It's combined at Haystack um, in, a, in a big server room, basically. And that's where the data goes from being ones and zeros and useless on its own to a cohesive whole that can be turned into the really cool black hole images. That right. Yeah. Have. That's cool. All right. So let's talk about your... NIAC grant proposal. Uh, what is the what's the idea? The idea is that there's a part of the sky, you know, a part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we've never really seen from the surface of the Earth. And that's because the ionized part of the Earth's atmosphere reflects back very low frequency signals. So we can't see through that layer from the ground. So we need a space telescope. But at low frequencies, you need a really big telescope. Um, so it has been infeasible to date to put a really, really, really big telescope in space to look at this part of the spectrum. And, and what size wavelengths are we talking about here? We're talking about waves that span from about a meter all the way through tens of kilometers. Very, very long waves. Hmm. Um, in frequency, that is, um, let's say, 15 megahertz down to 100 kilohertz. So uh, that, that covers the AM band. 
And so like even with new powerful radio telescopes, like say the square kilometer array, it still can't get you beyond a certain size of wavelength because of the atmosphere. Correct. Yes. And, and so, and is, and is that the line, that one meter line? So anything bigger than one meter, we just can't see it's inaccessible from the surface of the earth. It varies depending on what the sun is doing and whether it's day or night, but it's between about one and 10 um, megahertz, which is, you know, order 30 meter waves. Okay. Okay. All right. And so then the goal here is to put a space telescope up and you know, I mean, we think about the trials and tribulations of getting the James Webb Space Telescope up. That's a six and a half meter instrument. How big of a telescope would you need in space? If it was just like one telescope, one big radio dish in space, how big would this thing have to be to start accessing this hidden part of the electromagnetic spectrum? The resolution of a telescope is the wavelength divided by the diameter of the telescope. So you want your telescope to be many wavelengths across in order to have good resolution. So when we're talking about waves that are tens, hundreds of meters up to kilometers, that's a telescope that's tens, hundreds of kilometers across. At, at the very minimum, like if you want minimum. two ways. So if you want to re resolve two wavelengths of a, say, 100 meter wave, you need to have a 200 meter telescope. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which you can see why that is difficult if you think about it as a single dish. Yeah, sounds a little tricky. But, you know, thanks to the power of interferometry, all the work done with the Event Horizon Telescope, break the problem up into little pieces, literally. Uh, so what is your strategy for being able to create a telescope that can access these wavelengths? So we, we've been inspired by the growth of these commercial mega constellations. You know, they're launching hundreds, thousands of identical spacecraft that are mass produced and therefore um, less expensive than traditional one-off spacecraft uh, into, into Earth orbiting constellations uh, for communication purposes. So, you know, our thought is why not take that innovation and apply it to science, to astronomy, and use this th these economic trends um, to build a constellation of small spacecraft that will work together as an interferometer and form kind of a virtual telescope that can be hundreds of kilometers across, no problem. And so how big would each part of the fleet be? The other innovation that's really driving um, this possibility is, is CubeSats, small spacecraft that are the size of a loaf of bread to maybe the size of a big cereal box. So something I can hold in my hand, um, and that's the size spacecraft that we're thinking about for this constellation, for GOLO. And I, I think about, say, the work that's being done on the Square Kilometer Array in Australia, and it is just thousands of these little Christmas tree antennae that work together to provide this their, their portion of the, of the resolution. Um, and so like each one of these tiny little instruments how much, I guess, aperture would they have? So that's one of the key things that we're going to look at in this study. Uh, we're going to look at what antenna maximizes mm. the performance of the array while still being amenable to deployment from a small package. Uh, the, the leading candidate right now is something called a vector sensor, um, which we're uh, getting ready to fly on a, another mission in Earth orbit to test it out. 
a vector sensor is is just six antennas um, that are sort of bundled together. And with those six antennas, you can measure all of the properties of an electromagnetic wave. There, there are six components. Um, if you want to get into into vector math with a of an electromagnetic wave, and with the six antennas that the vector sensor has, we can measure all six of those. And with some advanced signal processing and um, imaging algorithms, we can turn that information into a relatively coarse map of the sky, just with one antenna. So what we think vector sensors will offer us for GOLO is the, the maximum amount of information we can possibly collect in a single package. Um, and then we can combine that and make really exquisite maps of the sky. Um, and we are trying out this technology on a mission called AeroVista. Uh, which we hope to fly in the next couple of years. And, and so then as you add more of them, what is, do you think, your ideal configuration to to maximize your observations? Because I know like with interferometry, you can increase the baseline, you can increase your resolution, but you don't necessarily get to increase the, the brightness of the objects that you're observing. That takes more telescopes. What is sort of an ideal configuration, do you think, at this point? So the really neat thing about a, a telescope made of many pieces is, th is that you can grow it over time. You don't have to launch everything all at once. You can send, um, you know, more telescope, more units, more elements on subsequent launches and build up your capacity over time. And the the configuration and the number depend on the specific science that you know one is interested in doing. So. There's, there's two key factors. There's resolution or sharpness of an image and there's sensitivity. Like what's the dimmest thing that you can see? Mm -hmm. And the, the spacing, the size of the array sets the sharpness, just like, you know, bigger telescopes provide sharper images like JWST. Um, and the number, sort of the density, if you like, of um, elements sets the sensitivity. So for high sensitivity uh, measurements, like for example, looking for magnetic fields of exoplanets, you need a lot. And part of the study is going to be determining exactly what a lot means, but it's going to be thousands, <laughs> right. um, perhaps thousands. hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, and do you have like a rough sense? Like how big would this cloud of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of CubeSats together be? Like if you just measured it across? We think that the biggest useful resolution uh, will come from a constellation that's, you know, maybe a thousand kilometers across. Right. So maybe it's... not quite as big as you would think, uh, but it turns out that the plasma that fills the space between stars um, and galaxies kind of sets a limit on how good your resolution can be. So beyond hmm. a thousand, maybe a few thousand kilometers, you'll you'll have diminishing returns in terms of resolution. Right. Um, so we've got this cloud of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of satellites. Where do you want to put it? Where's a good place to keep this thing stable? So our leading candidate right now um, are the fourth and fifth Lagrange points in the Earth-Sun system. And Lagrange mm -hmm. points are these special places where there's kind of a, a low point or a saddle point in, in the gravitational potential. Um, and the fourth and fifth Lagrange points are uh, behind and ahead of the orbit of the Earth. Um, and they are special because they're stable. They're, they're, they're real dips. They're like a little valley 
in the potential. So anything you put there tends to stay there. Um, in fact, there's systems of asteroids like the jo the Jovian Trojan asteroids that just kind of sit in these places. Um, so we like those because it's a stable spot. We don't have to use a lot of propulsion to keep our constellation where we want it to be. Um, and we also don't have to worry about cluttering up space. Uh, we know that anything we put there will pretty much stay. Um, and if it doesn't, it'll eventually fall into the sun. So it's tidy. How important is it to keep the spacecraft aligned together? Like, will each little spacecraft have to have its own little propulsion system and try and stay in track? Or is it okay if it's kind of rough? Yeah, it's okay if it's kind of rough. Um, yeah. What's important is that we know where they are. So long as we know where they are at any given time, we can make the kind of maps that we're interested in. Um, each spacecraft will have a little bit of propulsion so that if we want to, we can reconfigure the array for a specific science measurement. Um, there's right. lots of different configurations one can imagine. And a really cool thing about this concept is you can do that. You can change your telescope to suit the science. So we'll have right. some propulsion on board for that purpose to move them around if we want to. Maybe concentrate them in a smaller area or maybe spread them out just to see what the real limits of our resolution are, for example. Yeah, I had a chance to visit the Very Long Baseline Array and they have these giant radio telescopes that are on tracks and they can extend the, the telescopes out to the very limit to make a very large interferometer, or they can bring them in very tight if they want to get up like a higher sensitivity on some specific object. And I can sort of imagine that, but I guess you only get so many chances at, at being able to move them around. And then after a while, they're just, you run out of propellant and then they're just locked in place. Right. Um, another feature though, is that we can deliver new ones. Um, as mm -hmm. spacecraft fail or run out of propulsion, we can send new units. Um, Does the orientation matter? For vector sensors, no. Um, huh. The spacecraft could be in whatever orientation they want to be. A vector sensor sees the whole sky all the time. So they can they can tumble however they want to tumble, and that's that's okay. So let's talk about the science that you want to do then. So we've, we've sort of talked about the engineering of, about building this giant fleet of, of spacecraft, putting it at the L4 or L5. What can we do? What is, I, we've never really observed this realm, so maybe we don't even know, but, but what do you expect that we'll be able to see in that part portion of the electromagnetic spectrum? So the, there are a lot of science applications, and I'm not I'm not qualified to speak on all of them, but I'll try to give you uh, an overview. Um, the first thing that I am interested in doing is simply making that map. Let's map the sky at relatively high resolution and good sensitivity, and see what there is to see. See how the view changes with frequency. Um, see if there's anything that's varying in time, which could be really interesting. Uh, and what we'll what we'll see immediately is the structure of the that plasma that I was talking about that fills the spaces in between stars and and galaxies. So the interstellar medium and the intergalactic medium, um, and we'll see it. We'll see its shape. We'll learn something about the magnetic fields that thread through it, um, and we'll we'll have, you know, another another perspective on our on our galaxy and on our local neighborhood. You know, what, what does it look like and how does it compare to the higher frequency measurements that we've taken from ground-based telescopes and from instruments like the SKA that are coming online? 
Um, SKA certainly will make exquisite maps at slightly higher frequencies um, and will be able to see the transition down into lower frequencies with GOLO. So simply mapping and you know the potential serendipitous discoveries that come from mapping, it's kind of the first, the first thing. Um, when we started looking at the sky in radio waves from the ground, we found pulsars, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which was not expected. So who knows what we might find just by making a map. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think about like, say, well, the first time, like x-rays and gamma rays are things that are blocked by the atmosphere. And when they put up the first telescopes and just started making surveys of the sky in these wavelengths we'd never seen before, bright objects appeared, and they ended up being things like black holes and gamma ray bursts and, and things like that. Like, you don't even know to look for these things. And yet right. there they are. Right. So there's real discovery space, I think. And I don't know all that we might see. <laughs> Um, but, yeah. but there are things that we, we know to look for. Um, my personal uh, background and field and interests lie with exoplanets. Um, mm -hmm. We know that planets in our solar system, like the Earth and Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, they have magnetic fields. And the charged particles in those magnetic fields uh, emit very strongly at these low frequencies. Um, we don't really think about seeing it from the Earth because the ionosphere is in the way and it doesn't come down to the surface where we are. But the Earth is this powerful radio beacon, as are the other solar system planets. And we expect that exoplanets with magnetic fields are going to have the same kind of behavior. And we can measure that radio emission. We'll be able to get a sense for how strong their magnetic fields are, which will tell us about um, how their atmospheres might evolve with time, whether they're likely to hold on to atmospheres or whether they're likely to lose them. Um, so magnetic fields are a piece of the exoplanet puzzle that we have very few tools for uh, accessing right now. And low frequency radio is, um, you know, has a lot of potential to help with that, to help us put another piece into that puzzle of how exoplanets work, how they evolve, and ultimately whether or not they may be habitable for life as we understand it. I mean, we have only one example of life in the universe that we know of that's here on Earth. But we have multiple examples of planets with magnetospheres in the solar system. I mean, we've got Earth, we've got Jupiter, even Ganymede has a magnetosphere and 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 at different strengths at different levels and, and so on. So we do have something that we can compare. We know that life probably wouldn't be the same on Earth without that magnetosphere. And so being able to have three examples or more here in the solar system, that gives us a really powerful way to compare and contrast other systems in a way that we can't do with life so far to try and get a sense of this. Um, so how detectable do you think these magnetospheres will be using this array? They're going to be one of the most challenging targets. Um, because even though you know, planets are powerful radio emitters. They're far away and they're not, you know, they're not, they're not as powerful as, you know, pulsars, for example. So they're, if they're like the planets in the solar system, which is an if, we don't have um, much evidence to say one way or the other what exomagnetospheres are like. But if they're like the planets in the solar system, they're going to be dim targets. They're going to be hard, possibly the, the most challenging target for a uh, telescope like GOLO. So they're, they're one um, science case that requires a lot of antennas. Um, and exactly how many, as I said, we're going to study. 
uh, and then have a have a much better idea of what we really need um, and what the best antenna is for the job. Now, I remember with your proposal, you were suggesting searching out to a certain distance, like a certain number of parsecs. So what kind of, you know, what is your like, I know this is the whole point of this grant is for you to figure out these answers. But what is your, you know, you must have made some part in your proposal. What do you think is the kind of sphere that we can attempt to detect? If we're talking about if we assume that, you know, these these exoplanets have magnetic fields, similar to the solar system, maybe some of them are closer to their stars than than our planets are. Something like 10 parsecs. Um, right, so about the, 30 light years. Yeah, the, the local neighborhood um, that, that we're a part of is what I think is reachable. And, and do you have any problem, like, like with trying to directly image exoplanets, you know, you've got the brightness of the star, it's like whatever, is it a billion, billion times brighter, the star compared to the, the planet? Do you have a similar issue with the intense radio waves coming from the star compared to the radio waves coming from the planet? Is there a coronagraph version in the radio spectrum? We have um, we have a different problem. So we have a much more favorable contrast ratio for um, low frequency radio. Stars are not anywhere near as bright at these very long wavelengths um, as they are at optical wavelengths. So our contrast ratio is probably one or so plus or minus hmm. a little bit. Really? Like the, the brightness of the star is about the same as the brightness of a planet with a magnetosphere. Yeah. Jupiter outshines the sun at low wow. frequencies often. Not always. It's uh, variable, yeah. but sometimes. Um, but stars really do exciting. emit at low frequencies, and especially when they are experiencing activity, uh, flares and coronal mass ejections. So telling the difference you know what's coming from a planet versus what is stellar is um is definitely a challenge uh and there are you know there are ways to tell um the the time time is is one of the key ones you know what is are we seeing um are we seeing variability on a time scale that matches a planet's orbit for example or is it on a time scale that matches the star's rotation so you can separate out one from the mm. other by looking at uh, periodicity. Would there be some kind of like like uh, signal and response, like the star gives off a burst and then the planet gives off one eight minutes later? Yes, uh, quite possibly. Um, yeah, we see this. We see this in the solar system when there's a strong um, CME, coronal mass ejection, and it hits a planet. Um, the planet responds uh and the the radio emission from the planet changes and and brightens and changes in frequency the the exact way in which um planets respond to the sun is complicated but there is a response um and we that would be you know that would be the ideal scenario for us to watch a cme leave another star and see another blip as it reaches a planet in that system yeah, or multiple blips as it passes each of the planets with magnetospheres in the in the system. Um, that's really exciting. Um, when I sort of think about that ability. So now, you know, the big challenges with searching for exoplanets today is that you need them to mostly be lined up between us, the star and the and the, the exoplanet where you know, the transit method, the planet is passing in front of the star, the radio velocity, it's close to the star. 
Are there any limitations in terms of orientation in using this technique to find exoplanets? Yes, but they're a lot less severe than uh, for radio velocity or transit. Um, radio emission from magnetic fields of planets, it's beamed in a cone, kind of like a pulsar. Um, so it's kind of, you think about it like a lighthouse. So as the planet turns, this cone sweeps around, but these cones are wide. Um, so the, the probability of us intersecting a cone, especially if you take a, a population of planets rather than just one at a time is high. So there are geometric effects, um, exactly how they work. It's hard to predict because it depends on the geometry of the magnetic field. Um, but sort of on average, we should definitely see, we should definitely intersect with some of those cones, um, even if not every single planet out there. But these cones are going, they're following the poles of the planet, like they're going to be going up and down. And that is and going out at some angle that's very wide. And that's almost the opposite of what we see with the transit and the radial velocity method. So in, in theory, this method could catch the planets that those other techniques would miss. They're catching yeah. the ones that are face on while the other ones are catching the ones that are that are edge on. So, so let's say in your perfect world, you launch 10,000 satellites, 100,000, a million satellites, and they are stretched across a field of view at the very limits of what's possible until the plasma, the interstellar plasma is ruining your results. Um, are we mapping out the planets, all the planets with magnetospheres in our local environment? That's the hope. Um, if we have yeah. sufficient sensitivity, there'll be some, um, there'll be some uh, distance limit beyond which we'll only pick up particularly bright emitters or maybe emission when a CME hits a planet. Um, but but within some sphere of, you know, a few parsecs, five, 10, sort of depends on the sensitivity. Yeah, I think we can um, pick up all of the planets that have magnetospheres um, that have favorable orientation for that emission cone to reach us. And if you had unlimited budget, and just kept making a bigger and bigger telescope. Is there a limit where it just used like, no matter how much money you could spend at the problem, you can't resolve any further? In theory, you can increase your sensitivity by increasing the number of spacecraft, just go up and up and up and up. Right. You, okay. The, the limitation is um, data. It's moving all of that data around and getting it correlated. Um, we have very powerful computers on the ground. It's a lot harder to get them into space and have them work reliably. So the the real limit limiting factor, I think, is going to be data transport and um, getting mm. it back to back to Earth. Is there any value in using both of the Lagrange points, like say use L four and L five at the same time to run a baseline between those two points? That's an interesting thought. Um, I suppose. If you're looking at something close where there's not a lot of intervening plasma, potentially even solar system planets, um, you could have exquisite resolution along that, you know, with that baseline. That that baseline is um, it's between one and two AU. Uh, it's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a triangle, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very long baseline, which would give you extraordinary resolution if the plasma didn't ruin it. Right. Um, so I'd have to think about that a little bit more to, to give you a better answer. But that's, that's a neat idea that we hadn't, we hadn't actually talked about yet.
Oh, there we go. The idea, the idea that I really like is you put one at L4, one at L5, and then one at L3. The L3 is tricky because it's not gravitationally stable. And so you're going to have to do some work, but maybe you just have like a bigger satellite that sits there and participates somehow. But, but that you now form this equilateral triangle that is, that is gigantic, as you say, you know, you know, 200, 200 million AU per leg. You know, and, um, now that now that I've had a second to think about it, one application for for such a, you know, long baseline, two element or three element interferometer is uh, solar radio emission, you could track uh, CMEs, um, they emit at low frequencies as they propagate away from the sun. Hmm. And you could track them to pretty um, amazing angular resolution and you know as they propagate away from the sun and move out into the um solar system and maybe come towards earth which is always a concern. right so yeah anything that'll give us a warning of a bad solar storm that's going to take out human civilization would be would be helpful what about techno signatures are there any kinds of techno signatures that could be detectable in these wavelengths um i it this is not my field so i'm gonna mm -hmm. give my uninformed opinion Yep. Um, I would say that's unlikely. Um, mm -hmm. If civilization is going to communicate, the sort of information theory says that you have to move to higher and higher um, frequencies to fit more information into your communication. Um, so assuming electromagnetic spectrum is used for communication, uh, more advanced civilizations would move up in, in the spectrum as we have from the very early days of, you know, HF communication now to using um, gigahertz frequencies for cell phones and uh, satellites and also moving to optical communication. So if we were to see low frequency intelligent signals, it might be like from a very early stage um, like, you know, us in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, but the, the energy at these long wavelengths is low and they spread out. So by the time they would get to us, it'd be extremely faint. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, even with a extremely robust go low, we'd be able to pick them up. Um, I, I think this idea, uh, you know, you sort of mentioned this early on in the, in the conversation about, about building these networks piecemeal, bit by bit by bit, adding more as you as you go. I think that's a really powerful sort of methodology that could be used across all observatories. I mean, there's there's some really ideas, you know, you can go the we saw what happened when you spend $10 billion, and you take 20 years and you build one exquisite telescope. I would love to see what happens when we spend you know, $100 million per telescope, and we launch them one after the other, and they just work together. Do you think that idea has applications across astronomy? Certainly, they're, they're, interferometry works at any wavelength, it just gets harder when you go to shorter wavelengths, um, higher frequencies. So there has been in the past a lot of interest in optical or infrared interferometry um, for high resolution and for application to exoplanets, actually. Um, 
And yes, you can launch smaller spacecraft. You just have to work a little bit harder to make them function together as an interferometer. And I, I hope that you know we could start at low frequencies where this is relatively easy um, because the wavelengths are long. And maybe if that's a success, it would it would bring about the same application of the same technology at increasingly higher frequencies. Certainly, there's application for. Um, the Event Horizon Telescope to move to space. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of work going on um, around that to increase the baseline length, because right now they're limited by the size of the Earth. Um, and if you want better resolution, you either have to go to higher frequencies or you have to go to space. Um, and which one's harder <laughs> kind of depends um, on, on who you talk to. But yeah, I, I really hope that um, you know, this concept and the study we're going to do um, will nudge things in that direction. But but even like interferometry is is one thing. And, and as you say, you know, if you're going to try and move into the visible wavelengths, even infrared, you have to get your distance between your telescopes, right? It's really tricky work, it's a lot of post processing. But I think even just putting two telescopes that are a meter across that were easy to build easy to launch side by side, not trying to make them be an interferometer, you've got two square meters of observing area together. And if you want more telescope, you send 10 more and then 10 more. And after a while, the numbers start to add up and you don't have to necessarily have that precision. Like I like that idea of them just floating around in L4. And you're just taking all the all the photons that are coming onto them and not stressing about whether or not you've made an interferometer just that you've added now it's a 20 meter telescope. Now it's a 40 meter telescope over time. Right. And you can look in different directions. Um, yes. You know, if you're talking about optical telescopes, there's some really great ideas that are not mine um, to put observatories at these Lagrange points to look at the sun, to look at um, asteroids. You know, there are some asteroids that are very hard to see if they are sort of passing between the earth and the sun. Because looking into the sun is hard. <laughs> Um, so if you were to put an observatory out of these Lagrange points, they would have a different perspective. And if you had more than one, they could look in different directions mm -hmm. at the same time. So you get better sky coverage uh, without having to resort to interferometry. Yeah, I kind of imagine this pipeline of mass produced, relatively inexpensive telescopes of whatever is the is the right size and you're just sending them like like we've seen with Starlink, you know, I think this is what caused some of your inspiration is just keep sending more and more of these telescopes up into some location and you just make this bigger and bigger observatory. And as you said, you know, they can all work together or they can all be looking at different targets. You can, and, but they're relatively inexpensive because I mean, this is just, you know, we're moving into my opinion here, but, but I think, you know, web is amazing, but it, it can only answer very specific limited questions. And it's sad that we don't have more Hubble's you know, more, more telescopes to answer these more generic, general questions. I mean, Hubble's way oversubscribed. Yeah, there, there's tons of benefits at um, multiple wavelengths to being in space, invisible yeah. wavelengths, um, in, you know, infrared, far infrared, in UV, um, which is, uh, you know, a really interesting um, place to look at stellar activity, for example. So um, one of my, one of my earlier uh, CubeSat projects was a mission called Asteria, which was a little tiny six centimeter um, optical telescope. And, you know, we we got some really good results just with this tiny little telescope. We were able wow. to pick up exoplanet transits. Um, 
And I think huh. that something just, you know, just a little bit bigger um, with a yeah. little bit more collecting area would be even more capable. And, you know, I completely agree that the advent of CubeSats and SmallSats makes this much more feasible to have yeah. many sort of mid-sized telescopes in space like we do on the ground. You know, like the, there are observatories with meter class telescopes all over the place and, you know, they're accessible to to students, um, to, to researchers without the, you know, a factor of 10 over subscription or, or whatever it is for, for Hubble and yeah. JWST. But the problem is that we're under the soup of an atmosphere. And so a 10 inch telescope and a uh, 10 meter telescope have roughly the, you know, they're, they're about the same without any kind of atmospheric correction. Like it's, it's that adaptive optics on the big telescopes that is letting you make the really extreme measurements. But you take a 10 inch telescope and you put it into space, then it's just size is the only thing that matters. You don't need to have that additional adaptive optics operating to get you the better view. And so I think there's like this layer of technology that has to go over top of it. And I'm sure there's some cost balance that I, you know, I haven't, I haven't thought through the, the implications of it, but I'm guessing, you know, we see what's happening with Starlink. We see 60 more satellites. Those could be 60 telescopes going on a single rocket launch and then handed out like candy to astronomers. So, yeah, it would be a real, um, democratization of access yeah. to space telescopes. Um, you know, it's it takes a lot, a lot of work and, you know, really expertise and some, you know, insider knowledge to to write and win a proposal for time um, on Hubble or JWST or any other space based observatory. And um, yeah. it's still a lottery like, yeah, you know, it's still a lottery even for the best resourced teams. So and I think like when you're doing astronomy, you're saying what is the like, I love access to Hubble or whatever, but really what is the the minimum instrument that I can get my hands on to make my observation? That's what you're looking for. And it may be a 10 inch telescope or something, you know, a meter class telescope at a small university or whatever. If it can make that observation, you're going to try and get time on that as opposed to waiting in line on, on Hubble. Right. Um, an exoplanet example, you know, if you wanted to stare at a nearby star, like say Alpha Centauri, um, yeah. just continuously for a year, two years, three years, just to see if there might be a transit of a, of a, you know, relatively far out planet, Hubble's not going to do that and shouldn't do that because that isn't the best use of time. You know, it's very high risk, very low chance of actually finding something, but it would be high impact if you did. Yeah. But a smaller telescope could be tasked in a dedicated manner to, to do an experiment like that. And I think there's probably many other similar examples. Yeah, I read a paper, it feels like it was about 10 years ago, someone was proposing that, that we build a small space telescope and its only job is to watch Alpha Centauri. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, it's a terrific idea, I love it. Yes, that, that, um, that concept has been has been kicking around. It was originally the motivation for Asteria um, and my PhD advisor, Sarah Seeker, was really interested in that at the time. Right, right. Yeah, uh, the famous Sarah Seeger. Um, so what's next then? You've uh, you've won a grant, you have some work to do. What is your deliverable? What are you expecting to produce and when? So it's a nine month study. Uh, so it's a real sprint. Um, and the end result is a report. And we will report on 
um, a couple of you know key questions. I've I've talked about a few of them. You know, what's the best antenna? How many do we need? Um, is L4, L5 definitely the right place to put them? We want to make sure that that checks out. We think so, but we want to do the analysis. Um, we'll also be looking at what's the architecture? How would this array be structured? Mm -hmm. How would it communicate with the earth? How would it communicate internally? How do we move data? Do we do yeah. our data processing in the array on site or do we send right. fairly raw data back to earth and do the processing here, which is most efficient. Right. I can imagine some kind of mother brain that's out there in the field with them collecting their data and crunching it and then sending the results home as opposed to, to trying to have each, each separate device send its raw data home. Right. And that, that's one of the big architectural trades that we're going to do. We really want to tackle that question. Is it better to have exactly identical elements so that the failure of any one doesn't really matter? Um, or do you want a heterogeneous array mm -hmm. with, you know, larger computation nodes, as you were saying, um, or maybe larger communication nodes, or maybe those are the same node yeah. that, that's bigger, more powerful, um, we want to we want to look at that in in detail, and come up with an answer. You know which architecture is better for the for the kind of telescope we want Golo to be. Um, I don't know the answer yet, and I'm really excited to to work yeah. with you know the team and find out. Well, me too. I'm really excited about this idea, and and I. I anticipated a bunch of rabbit holes that I'm now going to be diving down and I and they, they have shown up. So now I will, uh, I'm going to be watching this very, uh, very interestingly. If you do detect uh, when you start launching satellites, let me know. Certainly, certainly. Oh. Um, it, it's a ways off, you know, now uh, yeah. to be early stage. And this is not something that we could start doing tomorrow. But yeah, you know, I am um, I really just believe watch in a six inch satellite. We could do that tomorrow. I think we have that in us. <laughs> All right. So. Well, Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, congratulations on on the uh, on the grant. And I look forward to the published paper. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. You can get even more space news on my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content that we don't publish anywhere else. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Joff Schultz, and Andrew M. Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.